Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show. Uh, my name is Sean Atkinson. I'm here with Tony Sager. Hey, Sean. Hey, Tony. Today, we're going to talk about soft skills in cybersecurity. And really, from this discussion's perspective, it's not just about cybersecurity, but in the field of cybersecurity, risk management, privacy, compliance, auditing, is those underlying skills that are needed for success. And in a lot of cases, what you'll find is people get overwhelmed with technical knowledge in this space, right? Understanding maybe legal requirement, uh, understanding networking, uh, security controls and configurations of service, which obviously for this organization is huge, but it's not everything. And Tony, what I'd like to do and talk to you about today is some of those soft skills that over our careers, I think we've needed to develop in order to really get to the point of what we're trying to do in a cybersecurity space. You know, what's the underlying message? What is the underlying goal, objective, strategy that we're trying to achieve? What are your thoughts there, Tony? Yeah, Sean, it's a great topic and uh, something that I think has affected both of us. You know, we work in a really high tech business, right? And it's it's a science that's kind of inventing itself as it goes along. So there's a ton to learn around technology and you know the the impact on society and so forth. But you know when I look back over my long career, you know the um, it's the soft skills that have made the difference that have gotten me into the kind of uh, positions of responsibility, enabled me to convince people to support ideas that, that I was working on. And so there's a really broad range of things that we need to think of when we look at managing our career across the long haul. Right. And certainly, obviously, this is a high technology business, but, uh, you know, the ability to work with people and all these other things that go with the professional life are really important. And I think one thing that folks don't always appreciate is that they, these are skills and skills can be learned and taught and improved upon and practiced. And so if you don't think about them occasionally, then you're really cheating yourself, I think, of opportunity through the long haul of your career. Completely agree, Tony. Completely agree. One of the ones I'm going to kick off, uh, Tony, is is um, the ability to inspire, persuade, and motivate. Now, this may be put in context, but it's really presenting your message, you know. Uh, and me, in my current position and other positions that I've held, it's it's the underlying idea and the purity of that idea and being able to communicate it in a way uh, that one really shows underlying, you know, creativity, ability to adapt um, to underlying elements of security issues, audit requirements, compliance reviews, things of that nature. But I think the way that you do it is very important too. And one of the things, um, again, I really have to emphasize being the chief evangelist, I think there's no three words that maybe hit you more <laughs> in terms of your role. So I wondered if you could maybe just uh, maybe talk about that. And obviously, uh, in your position, we've, we've got a few others that I want to review with you. But um, what do you think about persuasion and motivation? 
Yeah, the, the chief evangelist thing, that was not my idea, I must admit. So um, when I retired and started down the route that, that brought me to CIS, I was partnered with uh, uh, Dr. Jane Lute, who at that time was the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security. And so we were you know, brainstorming what our three-person company would look like. And uh, she was obviously the brought in to manage as the CEO and and kind of work the business. And she's she's a fine technologist in her own right. But she turns to me and she says, and you're my chief evangelist. And I said, what? <laughs> she goes, you know, the chief evangelist, uh, like Vince Cerf at uh, Google. And I said, well, number one, v Vince Cerf is an internet god. <laughs> you know, I'm not worthy to carry his textbooks. She goes, yeah, but you you tell the story of what we're trying to do. And, you know, we're not looking to be a giant company. We're looking to be an influential company and convincing people that we're on the path of goodness, right? That there's something important going on. And, and our intent was to work really with sort of a volunteer army, right? To reach out to people, to help them see the, the fundamental uh, challenge of, of cybersecurity as a shared problem to which, it, which is worthy of their time, right? To contribute their time and their skills. And so she said, so, so that's the title that I want. And I said, well, yeah, okay, I get it. I'm not worthy to be Vince Cerf, but, but you know, he has a real job title also at Google. She said, okay, you can be the senior vice president for something, but you're still get chief evangelist. And so that, that carried on once we merged into the Center for Net Security, but it, it recognizes the point you raised, which is, you know, it's, um, you know, we like to think that we, we make decisions based upon data, but we're just as likely to make decisions based upon emotion, right? How we feel about this and are we inspired? And can we convince others? Can we get them excited about the challenge of security and its impact on society? And that was, that's really been a part of it. And I'm, I'm that kind of person, right? I, I, I loved working for people that inspired me, you know, that could tell that story that had a, that clearly had some vision, even when I didn't understand it completely at the time. And it was about generating confidence, right? I said that all I ever asked for from a boss was that they generate confidence, that they have a clue, that I know they, they, you know, they have a, a bigger idea, and then I'll figure out what my part is in that. So for me, that's been a lifelong quest, um, and the, the the way it kind of manifested in my daily life was you know, every time there was a big town hall meeting, I'd, I'd love to hear what the boss had to say. And a lot of people find it boring. I find it uh, enlightening, right? What 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 can I pull from their words something that I can latch on to that has meaning for me. And I still have scraps of paper, well, not literal scraps, but pieces of paper with notes taken from town hall meetings from the 70s and 80s and so forth. And a few of them I've gone back to and realized later with some more experience and maturity, I finally figured out what the boss was talking about. You know, there was a, there was a grander idea behind the words. And so you could kind of take them at face value or could, you could use them as a way to get you excited and motivated about that. So for me, there's a huge emotional component in your professional life to help generate the kind of excitement that allows you then to continue to take action, right? And so that, that's, you know, that's what that means to me. A bit, bit of a long story there, but to me, it, it, I'm looking for that. I'm looking for the person who has that story, who has that vision, and uh, then I can find my part in it. No, absolutely. And I, if it's all right, Tony, I'd like to sure. mention a story you'd mentioned to me. One of it was about Inspire. And it was how Alan Pala had written a book and was such a great motivational speaker in terms of the message he was mm -hmm. putting forward. I wondered if you could maybe reiterate some oh, of the sure. lessons that you've had from there, because that yeah. really resonated with me. 
Yeah, uh, Alan Paller, you know, the uh, the, the uh, owner of the Sands Institute, you know, obviously a very successful person in this business. And we bumped into each other by accident sometime. Oh, I forget, but it's been 20 years or so. And, um, you know, I got to see him in action, you know, giving, for example, a public talk or uh, working with very, very senior government officials or whatever. I was still at the National Security Agency at the time. And I thought, wow, this guy can tell a story, you know, that he had this sort of grand view of what was going on and the role of government and, you know, a mix of sort of storytelling about uh, sort of, you might say, you could dismiss them as anecdotes, but they were always tied to some deeper, larger story. And he was just so skillful at it. And I really enjoyed and, and was impressed by that. And I and I, the thought went through my mind with no disrespect to anyone I was working for at NSA at the time. I said, I wish I had one boss that could speak to this network security business the way Alan did. And I even arranged for him to come in as a speaker through our invited speaker series at NSA. Uh, and, and it was because at, at that moment in history, inside government, we were kind of struggling to reconcile the role of government with what was happening in the private sector. And things were changing really rapidly and in a much more open way than, than we were used to in government. So it was important to, to find our place, right? And to me, that I was inspired by the story that he told and about what might be possible. And so uh, I also, uh, I may have told that story before, Sean, as an illustration of public speaking as a skill. You know, that is, he was clearly skilled at. He had literally written a book on, uh, on how to, I forget the, the title of it, but how, how to give a, a presentation. And somewhere in there, I finally woke up to the obvious, which was, it is a skill, right? It is a, it is a professional skill, and therefore you can get better at it. And uh, you can study it, right? You can study masters of it. You can read about it. You can practice it. And I don't know why I didn't, it didn't really think of it that cleanly before. And I cannot tell you how many people have walked up to me after a public talk and said, oh, I'm not a good public speaker. You know, and I said, well, that's that's the classic self-fulfilling prophecy. And that was me 10 years ago. <laughs> and if you say it, then it's true. Right. But if you and, and I actually have a, a talk that I gave inside NSA and I recently just got permission to release it to the public. So you will see it very soon, Sean. I'll cheerfully share it with you and I'll, I'll find some company blog I can write about it. But it was a talk on public speaking in two parts. And because public speaking was such an anomaly at NSA, and in kind of in my last major uh, internal talk, it was advertised, I'm going to give a talk for 45 minutes, a composite of my unclassified public talks on, on uh, cybersecurity, the future of cyber defense, I called it. I said that I'm going to stop, and I said it deliberately, I'm going to break character. And then anyone who wants to stay for another 45 minutes, I'm going to talk about the craft of public speaking using the prior talk as an illustration. Why did I open it this way? Why did I say this? Why did I close it this way? And the idea was to help people. The, the basic underlying message of the talk is uh, it's, a, it's a professional skill, right? Nothing more than that. But people tend to equate these softer skills and public speaking in particular as sort of a value judgment on their worthiness as a human being or something, you know, right? If I, if I do something and it doesn't come across well, then I'm a failure as a human being. Well, well, no, you, you just did not succeed in this professional skill. Therefore, you need to take a hard look at that and decide how do I get better at it if you believe it's important to do. And for me, that was a, actually breakthrough thinking. You know, that is, you know, I grew up as a, I'm by far the most introverted person in my family. But, but for me, speaking is a professional skill that's required to advance the mission. 
And so I, I provide one level of emotional detachment from it. Therefore, I can get better at it. I'll never be as good as the masters, but you know, I'm comfortable with it. And it took me uh, you know, some years to get to that point. But I thought of it less as about me and more about how do I accomplish something in pursuit of the mission. So, so the the example of of Alan is just you know the, there are people that we have all seen that we just stand in awe of, right? And and uh, you know, again they inspire, they educate, and they do all kinds of things uh, skillfully. And many of them had to develop those skills over time, and that's okay, right? Again, if you think of your career as a 30, 40 year or so uh, path, then there's no reason you should wind up at the end the same person with the same skills that you were at the beginning. So that, that's, that's the perspective that I have on, on, that, on public speaking, but I, you know, it illustrates kind of a number of other things. And, and Sean, I know you've been on the, on the stage a number of times for these kinds of things. And you know, my guess is that you know, these are, most of us are not born with this sort of natural gift of, uh, you know, of gab. And we have to think about the message and you know, we've all study, you know, what's the language of their audience, right? What, what, what are they looking for? What can I do to, to, uh, to help them achieve their goals? And I think, you know, I think that that's something that we just learn to do as professionals. A hundred percent. Yeah. No, I'm, I was in the same space. I mean, um, growing up, you know, it was this, he could never get on a stage and do this because I was just introverted myself and I had to challenge myself. And I think that's one of the important pieces here is if it is difficult and, you know, one of the, the greatest fears among people is public speaking, you know? And so I had to challenge myself. And the way I did that was by teaching, um, completed a master's degree. I asked the Dean, uh, who was actually teaching on the class out, I, I, I want to teach. I think I, I really want to do this. And it challenged me because then I was obviously then responsible to students in order to provide the message to them. And again, like you say, you know, you've got to kind of tailor who you're speaking to. You know, it could be, you know, mass audiences at a security conference, or it could be where you're really presenting to board of directors, you know, executives, whatever it happens to be. And you obviously there's tailoring that's required, but like you say, and I'd love the, um, the example that you've told me about and that you just reiterated, it's fantastic. It is a skill and it can be built and harnessed and, and honed over a period of time. And so I've, um, been trying to apply that myself. So um, again, you've inspired me. So a great <laughs> oh, skill no. transfer. Well, you know, your example <laughs> is a wonderful one, Sean. Teaching is a is an excellent way, right, to develop those kinds of skills. And you know, again, it's not. We, we tend to think of it as the you know the lecturer droning on, but an effective teacher is in fact uh, has high empathy, right? Is able to sort of what what can the student absorb, and how do I bring them along a path? That I've already been on, but but maybe they would go a different route, and I think that's, you know, that, again, that there's a, a bit of multi-level thinking going on there, uh, you know, at, to to be able to craft that in a way, you know, and you talked about talking to boards and to executives and others, right? You you, you have to change language, right? you have to really think about what what is it that you know. It's not that they're any less smart; it's that they speak a different language, uh, they they might deal with a different level of abstraction, uh, they're what they're trying to get from you is, you know, is different than you would think. I was, there, there's one other story. I would tell you about my IP version six story. The uh, executive team, you know, IP version six was literally just on the horizon, right? Sort of uh, coming down the road. I mean, this was many years ago. And I had a brilliant young researcher whose job it was to, uh, to uh, follow the, the technical developments in the uh, emergence of IP version six. And I, I spoke with the, the director at the time and I said, um, and he, and he was curious, what does this mean to us? I said, 
Don't worry, I have an expert. I'll set him up. Give me 15 minutes on the executive committee's meeting time, and we'll you know, we'll give him a, an overview of what it means to them. So I turned to my brilliant young researcher and I said, "Okay, great opportunity for you. You're going to do this. 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, put something together. I'll be back tomorrow." I come back. Uh, Sean, you've been in this meeting, right? He had 75 view graphs. I, I forget the detective, but it was at least 75. I said, oh my goodness. Uh, tell you what, I'm going to leave. You're going to throw away two thirds of those and we're going to start over again tomorrow. And, yes. and he said to me, he said, um, well, I want to make sure I can answer any possible question that they ask me. And I said, you know, with all respect, Kaz, that was his name. I said, uh, no one at that table can even spell IP. <laughs> you are the expert. No one is going to question that. So anyway, it took me probably two or three hours of talking Kaz down off the technical ledge about IP version six to come up with a 10 to 15 minute talk for the executive committee. But it was a real illustration to me, right? He was a brilliant man. But, you know, it was so uh, embedded in technology that was hard for him to see this executive's view of the problem. And uh, yet, if you can do that, you are solid gold to an organization, right? That's a way of life, again, for, for folks like you, Sean. You've got to be able to take really complicated technical things and present them, in, in, you know, again, to auditors, to uh, penetration testing folks, to business executives, and all kinds of folks. So it's a really uh, important part of the professional discipline. Otherwise, you're going to be boxed into you know, the, the technical wizard that other people have to sort of figure out what they know. Exactly. Yeah, you then have to become the translator, as it were, because mm -hmm. there is there was one point, one skill, um, you know, detail oriented. And I think that mm -hmm. skill needs to be contextualized for, again, the audience. I mean, mm -hmm. as you mentioned in your, your story, um, you know, a complete treatise on IP version six is good for a particular audience. But I, I, I'm going to assume that the audience he was going to speak to um, maybe didn't require that level of detail. But I do think it's oh, important to uh, understand, apply. One of the things I like to do, and again, mentioning talking about compliance regulation, is the underlying logical reasoning behind why we're putting something together. And one thing I, I always talk about, Tony, is... It's not compliance, it's security. And compliance becomes the byproduct. So I don't want to apply in the detail just to be compliant without it having, obviously, an undertone of security control. It really doesn't make sense to me. And if it's not going to provide value from a security perspective, and I can then articulate that in a way to audit compliance, third parties, internal, external stakeholders, it allows me kind of that freedom to understand and apply control that then has the separate benefit of compliance. And I know we've talked about this before, but I think having that level of detail and applying that reasoning is so important and understanding it again, you may have to understand it at a technical level, but your communication has to be contextualized for really the respective audience. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful point, Sean, that you, you know, you don't, it's not a matter of being glib, right? And just sort of slick with words. It's mastering the topic, but then being able to stand back from it and present it to different audiences in a different context. And, and that, there's a big difference there. And you have, again, you have to think of them both as requiring tremendous skill, right? That is to, to understand technology and all the implications for security, but also be able to discuss it. And I think that the, the need for that, the kind of work that you do is growing rather than shrinking. 
that is, uh, you know, now we've spoken before about what I call the mainstreaming of cybersecurity, right? I, I grew up in the wizardry model. You know, you, you hire wizards to go test things and tell you things and fix things. And, uh, you know, you assume the bad guy is performing magic and you know, so forth. If you, if you treat this business as wizardry, then your only defense is more wizardry. But now we're starting to see the real move towards the role of insurance companies and the legal system and regulators to say, you know, cybersecurity really matters, but it's a risk that needs to be put in context of other business risks too, right? It's it's not very good business to bankrupt yourself by buying my, buying more cybersecurity controls or by uh, alienating your customer base, right? With really onerous security. And so the ability to integrate both technology, but also business interests and and uh, the sort of full range of risk, right? You're not competing for dollars with reputational issues and employee safety and all these other things. So the, the, the people that can uh, both understand the technology, but also translate it into these different um, you know, legitimate business interests, I think that that value is growing, not shrinking. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's become, you know, part of, well, I, I'll let me put it this way. And from a detail orientation and from both a persuasion perspective is if in risk, you're not talking about cybersecurity, you've missed an entire segment that could be detrimental to any organization. And then that's why it inspires those in the organization to bring that to a level where it is understood and where it is taken to a point where, um, like you say, I think at this point, we're getting to that mainstream element where it's not just, oh, this is an IT problem. No, 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 no. This is a business risk. This is something that you have to take into consideration throughout the life cycle of everything that you do. It's secure by design, and it's all secure um, throughout any life cycle of a product, an underlying service, whatever it happens to be. And really one of the other points, uh, Tony, that I'd like to go into is when you are part of a team and you're trying to raise elements, issues, I think another important skill, and uh, again, maybe in the technology field, some are... um, less likely to be you know part of a team setting but when you think now of the projectization of IT of every element you're going to be working in a team and being able to understand and work with team members understand you know really understanding underlying uh, theory behind individual personalities and you know we could do uh, emotional quotient tests and things like that in terms of really adapting and being part of that team. I think it's it's really good to understand who you are in respect uh, and then what you bring to the team and your underlying role. What do you think there? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, a, a colleague of mine somewhere in the middle of my career once said that the most important, uh, she was talking about leadership attributes. She said, most important leadership attribute, the one that really matters is what she called a healthy dose of uh, self-awareness. You know, that is to sort of know yourself, know your impact upon people, the impact that your words have and your actions have. And, you know, that's that's part of a broader understanding of self, right? To be able to think about yourself as a growing person and to uh, sort of see yourself in this context of uh, a whole range of skills and some that you uh, are better at, some that you're not as good at, uh, some that need better developing, right? For the purpose of, you know, being effective as a leader. And so uh, it takes a certain level of objectivity to that. And sometimes it's not comfortable right, to think about those kinds of things and, or to think of ourselves as a sort of whole, holy formed. Uh, oh, they, in addition, when people would say, oh, I'm not a good public speaker, the other one I heard all the time was, I'm not very creative. 
Well, if, if you decide that, then you aren't, right? But people study creativity. People write about it. And it's actually a pretty rich body of literature. And I had the opportunity to study some of that in the early 90s in particular. So I think that is, uh, as applied to the sort of broader uh, technology issue and the, and the teamwork issue that you brought up, you know, it's it's... We have this sort of notion, romanticized notion in IT of the lone wolf, you know, programmer, right? The the, the Unix wizard from, you know, comic strips or or whatever that runs off and creates some miracle thing. They're not, you know, that we don't really know what they're doing, but you know, we we know we have to pay them a lot, and good things pop out every once in a while. And 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 that that actually made more sense in my early days, where a lot of things were, you know, very bounded, a lot of esoteric subject matter knowledge, but that's not really not the case today. And so you're right, the large complex pro uh, projects are, uh, are inherently team-based, right? People of different levels of skill with different, coming from different disciplines and sort of looking at the total package. Uh, and that's very consistent with sort of modern development methods, right? You don't, you don't develop something and throw it over the wall to the support folks or the marketing folks. You try to build the whole thing, you know, and learn as you go and much more dynamic than, than I grew up in. So I, I think the, the uh, again, the, the ability to sort of see yourself as something bigger, we talked about earlier, sort of a bigger purpose, but now seeing yourself as something bigger, part of a team, right? The individuals that come together. And the modern notions of work are more about teams that come and go. You know, they're not permanent in the sense of they're not, they don't all work for the same boss necessarily, right? Now, I, I once, uh, there was an article that a, a boss of mine, one of my great mentors, shared with me, and this was 25 years ago. And I think it was from a Peter Drucker article, if you remember the name, uh, Peter Drucker, a famous management theorist. And I, what I remember of the article was that the, the work unit of the future would be more like a surgical team. You know, it would have this characteristics of people with differing expertise brought together for a specific purpose, and people know their roles, and there's a there's a sort of a, you know, um, a, a, a conduct of the activity, right? The purpose of the gathering, and then the team would disband at the end of that, right? And then come back together, you know, with potentially different players. But that that required a much more dynamic. When you applied that to say a technology organization, that applies it a much more dynamic sort of management style than we're used to, right? Managers are comfortable for, if everybody works for me, then I'm most comfortable, right? I can, I have a level of control, but if you think of it more of a skill-based, more like dynamically composed, you know, where people sort of know their parts and they come to apply their skills, uh, you know, over a, a longer task than a multi-hour surgery, for example. But, um, you know, I, I, I never let go of that lesson, not because I thought it was a perfect model of the future, but because I thought it was helpful to think about this idea of how do I bring people together from different disciplines? Uh, how do I create a purpose that binds them, right? And manage that in a way where everyone's role is respected and do it all over again the next day or the next day or the next day, you know, that sort of thing. So, but the, the, the team part of this, I, I really believe, you know, in, in sort of look, thinking about human nature, right? There is this inherent need for the vast majority of us to belong to something bigger. And the, the something bigger can be abstract. You know, I'm a, I'm a uh, professional uh, civil servant, you know, I'm serving my country, I'm a, you know, and, and that's good. But I don't have lunch with the president very often. You know, I, I care about my teammates, the people who, you know, I see as my peers. You know, who I ask about their children, and they ask about mine. And you know, there's a personal aspect to that that's really important, right? A binding. Uh, uh, you know, I feel like I'm part of this, even if it's a temporary thing. I, I feel part of a. You know, the the human touch part of it is very 
uh, powerful in terms of motivating uh, for people. And I, I always said, I, I borrowed a slang, a term from a book, I think it was Future Shock or one of those uh, sort of early um, you know, big thinking books, uh, high tech, high touch is a term I, I, I don't use it the same way the author did, but high tech is the more high tech the business becomes, the more high touch becomes important. That's what I took from it. You know, the idea is we, and I, now I've worked for organizations that thought, oh, we're just going to purely matrix everything, right? Everyone goes to their homeroom in the morning, they get a little sheet that tells them what the job, you know, it's, and everything is so nice and, and orderly. And uh, that has never worked in my entire career, right? Because human beings are human beings. They, they, they my, I thought what was missing it was a sense of belonging with my peers and who do I have lunch with and who do I commiserate with about the bad boss or whatever, that you need to provide a kind of a high touch mechanism. To complement the high tech, the high tech sort of focus that we have, and so again, another thing I've just kept in my brain is a you know, something to be aware of, right? That you, human beings are human, and so they like this idea of uh, interaction and belonging and, and and sort of, but but at both at a high abstract level, but also at a local personal, who do I see in the morning and have a cup of coffee with, kind of kind of way. I think in some cases, Tony, you know, over the last year and a half, it's been challenging losing that ability, as it were, with the working from home. And, you know, that social interaction has been really difficult in terms of, you know, it is the cup of coffee where decisions can be made a lot easier than it is through, you know, technology. But I completely understand and 100% agree, because it leads me into another area of, what I'm going to call an awareness skill. And this is both responsibility and opportunity. And I think the way I'm going to phrase it, I think you really put it well, was um, that surgical team or those teams that are coming together to put something that one is so complex that no one person on that team can be an expert. I think we're just past the layers of complexity now that there is that one you know person that knows it all. It, it just doesn't exist, especially in cybersecurity. And that's one of the adages you'll hear from everybody. Very good at this, I don't know everything. And it's impossible to try and you know do that and as, as much as I would try or as anybody would. But I think there's that's the, the opportunities then to work with those that do have that requisite knowledge to learn from them. How are they learning and applying that capability within an organization? And I think it's also good for the opportunity to work in those teams to be challenged if that's not, let's say, your natural setting. Or these are not the people that I choose to have coffee with. These are the people I've been put together in order to develop something, um, you know, as part of an underlying project or uh, a goal for the organization. But then doing that, I think there's another layer uh, that I, I really want to talk to you about is I think there's also a responsibility to accept opportunities as they come. And, and, you know, in cybersecurity, we're seeing, you know, there's an opportunity every day. But I think it's also important to have enough self-awareness when to say no, is that I'm not able to do this right now because of, you know, said plate is full uh, and doing it may uh, detract from the level of quality that I'm going to provide you or may detract from everything else that I've also promised to do. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, that's a great point, John. I think the... Um... You know the the nature of the business, right? The rapid uh, technical change, the the social implications, you know that that sort of thing. I mean, it, it is easy to be overwhelmed, and I, I find myself overwhelmed, uh, you know, often by by the this uh, because, you know, and and I think we 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 face that as individuals, and it's at the Center for Net Security we we face that also, right? I, I said one of our strategic planning challenges is 
we have sort of an infinite basket of good things we could do, but there's only so many that we can do. And the ratio is way out of whack, right? There, if there's a thousand good things we could do, each of which I could clearly say has value, maybe we can afford to do 10, right? Or a very small number compared to the total. So that puts a lot of uh, burden on us to say no, right? To, to be selective about the 10 or the 20 or the whatever uh, relatively small number. And, you know, that that is uh, challenging for lots of reasons, right? One, we're human beings. We don't like to say no because uh, it's sort of an admission of weakness. But also there's a, we, we see clearly there's a big need out there. Uh, you know, I'll go back to something that you said earlier, the sort of better you know yourself, right? The better, uh, the more self-awareness you have, the better you are able to help manage those kinds of things, right? To learn to say no, uh, to try and focus attention on things. Uh, at the same time, you have to, you know, we're, uh, just an example, we're, we're uh, thinking about this at the company level for the, for strategic planning. You know, every decision you make is an important one. Uh, including the ones you, you choose not to do and you choose. But it's a, it, it would be arrogant <laughs> to think that that decision, uh, you know, without question, is still a good decision six months from now or a year from now. So what are the assumptions upon which we make these decisions that we should be revisiting periodically to convince ourselves we made a good decision in the first place, right? And has the, has the context changed? Has the conditions of this decision chain. So you want to be able to, to spend a little bit of your time sort of thinking about those things without paralyzing yourself, right? Because you can always be second guessing. So I think this, this um, the better we are as individuals to, to have this high self-awareness about what is really important to advance the cause of the organization, the better we're able to make those choices as to what you know, we, we have to, to turn away. Uh, what we're learning to do as, as the company has grown rapidly, you know, and just in my time at CIS, you know, from uh, 2015 on, I think we've tripled or so in size, a triple or more in size. Um, you go away from everyone fits around the table to make those decisions, and we could all agree, to now we're multi-layers of organization making those decisions, right? So how do you coordinate this idea of you know what? What's the total portfolio of what we're doing, and are we making decisions that, you know, can be managed across hundreds of people now and multiple line organizations uh, that still give us this this notion of forward direction, right, in a common way, uh, without sort of overmanaging ourselves, right? You can make yourselves crazy with uh, trying to second guess everything, or um, uh, so. So for me, the the struggle is, and I don't know if it's true for everybody, but accepting a certain amount of inefficiency in the way organizations operate. I want things to make sense, but it's 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 taken me a long time to figure out that you know there's always uh, inefficiencies in the way any institution moves. And so uh, what you need to do though, this this reemphasizes the thing we talked about. I think to start the, the day uh, was around communications, right? How does the leadership uh, state clearly what is very important for the future of the institution and what it's trying to achieve. And the clearer you are in that, the greater the opportunities for people to look at that and interpret and make the right kinds of decisions. Uh, and that, that to me, I think, has is, is, um, been my lifelong lesson around, I'll call it a, a, um, institutional strategy. You, you, you can't manage everything from a central place but you can bring clarity and processes that allow people to make the same decision you would make 90% of the time. And that would be incredibly powerful, right? That gets people moving in the same direction without having to build sort of watching over their shoulder and uh, you know, managing every detail. So a, a bit of a wandering there, Sean, but for me, that's, you know, you have to balance 
the individual choices that people make, uh, but do it in a way that respects what the company is trying to do. And this came up a lot also when we discussed uh, moving to agile methodologies in the company, right? Yes. If you're trying to push decision-making down, you can't just push it down and say, I'm done with it You know, from the corporate level. You have to say, what information do I give people so that they can make decisions that are consistent with our corporate intentions and make them that way almost all the time Rec and be for have a, an environment that forgives when they don't, if they've made a you know, good faith effort to, to follow what we've said. So for me, that's the trick of being more agile, right? Is to be clearer at the strategic level so that people, and push the authority so that people can make the right choices, you know, essentially all the time and that you can manage at that level as opposed to, you know, sort of micromanaging the, the details of every person's um, you know, daily choices and what they're going to do, which is just the recipe for insanity and, and uh, uh, an unhappy workplace. Exactly, exactly. And I think also, too, there, it's an element of that responsibility being able to be pushed mm. down as well and accepting that it's, you know, further in the organization. And there's going to be failure. I think there that just has to be a known truth that it exists. And, you know, you embrace it. I, I think the underlying adage is fail fast so we can succeed quicker. And, you know, being able to incorporate that into those processes, into that way of thinking, uh, I think uh, as you walk yeah. into an organization, knowing Agile and utilizing its skills, because it's not just, um, you know, a methodology. I, I think there's a way of thinking around it, too. It's not mm -hmm. just I do, you know, iterative development. OK, done that, we, you know, we, we've perfected Agile. I think there's an element of perfection there. Um, does that make sense? No, absolutely. I think, you know, again, I grew up in a world where you took 10 to 15 years to develop a new radio for the U.S. Army. Right? You, yeah, that, that's, that's called fail slow. You know, sure. again, remember the old model, and you, you came in on the uh, during this era, Sean, right? The waterfall model and, you know, let's figure out all the requirements ahead of time and let's figure out all the technical specifications ahead of time. And we'll, you know, and, and you know, we have this sort of I'll call it by, by today's standards, right? Leisurely environment. It didn't feel like it in those days, right? But you know, but you had a lot of control of the environment, control of the schedule. Uh, you know, you could you could proceed in a way that you could never dream of doing today, right? That's not the world that we work in today. So, also, I think in cybersecurity, and and one of the things we might uh, I might ask you about, Sean, is you know different models of thinking, right? It, it's important to think about thinking every once in a while. And so um, how do you conceptualize decisions, right? How do you represent them so you understand the alternatives? And, you, and you've, you've had classes where you've learned about SWOT analysis and you know different uh, 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 diagramming techniques and all that kind of stuff. By the way, oh, there's a, a really neat website I bumped into the other day, uh, untools.cu. We'll, we'll leave a reference uh, to it somewhere. But it, it collects a bunch of these models. I, I've been collecting them over the years. You know, what I call quad quad charts and spectrum uh, spectral thinking charts, and they're just scratch on the whiteboard tools that I use to try and separate alternatives or weigh things. And it turns out, and then again, there's a whole body of literature, and this is part of our, our learning as professionals, how we think about such things. But this idea of of uh, thinking about thinking, I think is I believe is an underrated uh, set of skills that that's worth attention. I know you use some of those techniques in your analysis and and so forth, and that they help us sort of pull things, uh, really complex multivariable variable, um, uh, issues into 
into a, a, a manageable form, right? Where we can present them in sort of relatively compact ways to people who are not necessarily spending the same kind of kind of time. And so I was triggered by that because there's a, a body of literature I followed uh, called uh, Wicked Problems. I don't know if you ever bumped into that, but uh, it, 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 it was my first exposure uh, to something around um, uh, thinking about really complex social problems like poverty, the war on drugs, things like that, right? Where there is no magic solution. And you have to think of actions as sort of learning exercises, right? They, they take us to another level, but no one of them on their own, because there are just so many variables and so many complexities here that you, if you tried to study the problem, you would study it for the rest of your life and never really understand it. So it's more important to sort of create progress. It, it, it shares some attributes with, with um, uh, agile thinking. But uh, yeah, Sean, any, any sort of thinking about thinking from your perspective or any ideas that have helped you with, the, with what you've done over the years? One of the things that I've been learning as I've been uh, really going through cybersecurity is the uh, red team mentality. So thinking offensively um, with respect to how are we viewed from an attack perspective. And that has elements of uh, critical thinking. And there's been much published about critical thinking elements um, as we've really dive deep into um, understanding the threat and then emulating what the threat should be or could be based on our potential data, the, the position that we hold and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And so really getting into that thinking exercise is uh, what I like to do as part of a, a red team process. And so that's using, again, opportunity and responsibility of a group of people to come together and start thinking about strategies, start building threat models in order to understand what is our potential can then translate that into, right. you know, elements that, of that, risk. Yeah, that's a, that's that a wonderful example, Sean. I think, you know, when I start when red team started, I, I try to remind people, uh, at least in the government, red teaming really started was about creating drama. You know, that is the senior leaders don't believe and therefore we, we need a dramatic demonstration, you know, well, any leader that doesn't isn't paying attention today needs needs new work you know but the what you expressed was this is a these are really learning exercises and you know these are not free form demonstrations of cleverness right this is i'm emulating adversaries who have their own risk model by the way right you know we used to joke in the government there are certain adversaries they don't care if they get caught that's not in their risk model. They just blame it on some other country, right? Us or somebody else. You know, other countries will spend any amount of money to avoid being discovered, which is a dramatically different sort of attack methodology, right? Uh, some uh, don't seem to care as much, perhaps, about uh, loss of human life in you know in conduct of operations as others. So these are cultural, um, you know, context. They're part of the risk decision. Right. What are the preferences of an attacker? And if you can't sort of think your way through that, put yourself in their shoes, think about these different things, and you're really not providing the full value. So I think you're you're, you're sort of you've sort of taught yourself this idea of modeling adversaries. Right. It's not a mathematical. It's it's a it's a much cultural and sort of thinking about from their perspective as anything else. And again, if you if you fail to do that, then you're just creating drama. <laughs> it's not nearly as valuable to the decision maker. Right. And many of them don't understand that. You know, the drama still sells, uh, you know, in our business. But it, when I think of it, I, I look at it as a more of an economic and a decision issue, right? Does the red team create enough information to be worth the cost? If it, if all it tells me is I'm missing patches, that's not a that's a pretty 
uh, cost inefficient way to find I'm missing patches. You know, I need exactly. something better than that. <laughs> I could uh, tell you yeah. that now. <laughs> exactly. I can write that report for you. Sorry. Well, one, no, one theme thought, too. Sean, I'll, I'd like to ask about also. Sure. I, I remember a discussion with the recruiter at NSA many years ago. I forget, probably mid-90s or so. And they, they were lamenting, oh, we haven't been able to hire anybody from one of these top 10 engineering schools or something in the last couple of years. And I said, well, I said, you know, I, I get it, but the business is, is starting to change, I was thinking at the time. And I said, you know, if you really want to help me as a line manager, right, someone who hires people, I said, go find me lifelong learners. You know, the business, even then, the technology was changing really fast. And we, I grew up in a model where you, know, you showed up as a kid out of school. You learn at the feet of the masters inside the institution, right? They take you under their wing and put you in an internship. And you learn from them and kind of work your way up. And, and, you know, there's some of that still. But what I was finding was that the newer skills coming into the workforce from, I'll call them kids, were, you know, much more focused on what we needed at the time. And also the old folks like me, it's no longer, you know, we don't get 30 years to teach anymore, right? Because things are changing too rapidly. So the really valuable people in my workforce were the ones who could learn with the technology as it evolved. I said, so figure out some way to find these lifelong learners. That's a really important sort of character attribute to go along with technology. But I, you know, I, and I know you well enough to know to think of you in that category of lifelong learner. You just gave an example. So what do you think about that as, as uh, one of the softer skills? Oh, hundred percent. I think it's the, uh, you have to be inquisitive and it's mm. getting to that point where um, you can't know it all, but I still want to try. You know, it, you have to, and again, there's some learners that have a very specific set of skills that they want to improve upon. That's fantastic. I see that in Capture the Flags all the time, uh, and mm -hmm. it's great and it's admirable. Uh, and I play those, and mm -hmm. those those players are phenomenal. I, I mean, just excellent, excellent, excellent skill building. And but I, one of the things I like is diversity. So I love the diversity of learning different topics, yeah. just enough to understand and be able to make a, a decision. Because again, being part of an organization and as a CISO, I've got a lot of different things coming in from you know software, we've got supply chain risk, I've got to understand risk management, I have to look at threats, I have to see those developing. And trying to really acclimate to all of those, is it's never going to be perfect knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. but that's why we have other staff. That's why, you know, I, if I don't know the answer, I know somebody who does. Uh, yeah. and there's also a research capability there as well that I think really has to go into a set of skills is if I don't know the answer, well, Hey, I've got the internet. Uh, and you know, from me not having it to having it is, you know, uh, and having to do research by going and actually looking at articles in books and magazines rather than just coming into, you know, really all delivered to you on a plate is uh, is a, uh, a capability that uh, I don't think should be underlooked. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. You know, that you're, you're right. Even the way we learn skills is different than it was 10 years ago, 20 years, 30 years ago. And so that, again, the, the ability to do that, right? You know, and again, I, I stu stood in awe of uh, some of the new, new folks that came into my workforce, right? Their ability to quickly learn, absorb, and apply new skills was just unprecedented to someone like me, right? It was getting used to a, a more 
I'll say leisurely or a more more thoughtful way that, that those those happen. But but there's an underlying attitude there. And you, you hinted at it earlier in our talk today about uh, humility. You know, part of this is is being humble enough to know I will never know it all, but I can learn, you know, I can find other masters, right, who bring a different set of skills and learn from them and bring something to them. But to be able to sort of do that without uh, being defensive about it or feeling threatened by the expertise of others, you know, contributes then your ability to work with others, right? To to for them to see you as a member of their team and vice versa. And so, how do how do we pull all those together? So, so what? And uh, I will say, as so I've worked in you know big big institutions and work with lots of uh, uh, companies across industry and government and around the world too. But uh, I will say, working at the Center for Net Security, we are one of the most culture conscious, uh, in a good way, organizations I've worked for. That is, we're 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 trying to remain true to our our sort of small roots, right? The the closeness of the workforce, the way we interact, the sort of flexibility, the way we interact with a large volunteer army, with the industry at large. And, and um, you know, not long after I started, the, the leadership team tried to sort of embody all these characteristics, right, to, to codify them in some way that we could uh, uh, replicate and be conscious of as we grew, right? We knew we'd get bigger, we'd add more people. How do you, you know, and this is a really a break, uh, a make or break point for a lot of companies, right? You love the culture of the startup and the you know the closeness, all that. And how do you preserve the good things that, that you really treasure as you get bigger? Uh, perhaps you could share with the audience some of the things that we have done here at CIS to sort of codify what we think are these important softer skills and how they've just become, you know, not, not just an informal but really a institutionalized way we think of uh, a workforce acquisition and development. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the biggest thing, and, and when I first joined, Tony, these were in place, is the CIS leadership principles. Mm -hmm. Now, these are 12 principles that are part of core of the organization, as you mentioned, the culture. And every single one of them, the way I think about them is a soft skill. Uh, and, you know, we've alluded to some of them today. Um, but bringing those in and making those inherent as part of you know, really the organization is phenomenal. I mean, it, you can tell that it's had an effect on really the success that we've seen in CIS and that we will, you know, obviously continue and hope to see that going forward because of the adage of using those. I also want to point out as well, Tony, when whenever we're bringing someone into the organization, job posting, is we have cross-functional interviews. And these are specifically looking at these elements to bring into the organization and asking questions about them to make sure there is that cultural fit. And those cross-functional interviewers where, you know, if it's in my organization, it's going to be an element uh, of really focused on technical capability. But theirs is really looking at these skills, these leadership principles, as I mentioned, that really embody this soft skill capability that we've been talking about. Uh, and, you know, they're part of the decision-making process. And I've never seen that anywhere else. Um, I think it's so effective because I think on the offset, you know, if someone joins day one, you already have a, a particular capability that you've understood, that you know, and that's been assessed against these leadership principles. And I think it just, I think it makes all the difference personally. I think what I like about it, you know, we talked earlier about uh, individual self-awareness, right? It's a really important attribute, which allows you then to think about growth and where do I need to improve and so forth. And I would equate what you just described as sort of uh, doing that at an institutional level, right? 
we, we know what we care about, what we're about. And therefore, and it's not just bumper stickers or things hanging on doorknobs. It's how do we hire people? How do I, how do we identify them? How do we hire them? Right. How do we develop them over time? And I, I would say, um, uh, I, I think of CIS as proudly a little bit out of step with the times. That is, you do that. One reason you do that, right, is because you're, you want to get the right fit and you want that fit over a long period of time, right? So a lot of institutions that we work with, I think have, uh, you know, they, they see the, the new generation in the workforce as highly mobile, right? The, the numbers tell us people don't stay in jobs very long. And so uh, there's a tendency on the hiring side to say, well, I'm really bringing in hired guns. They're going to be here for three years, five years, max, right? I'm not, I don't make the same level of investment that I do with people who are going to be here for 10 or 15 or 25 years. And so an institution that's very careful about sort of cultural things, both when they bring them in and how they manage their careers is implicitly assuming they're going to be here a long time. They're worth the investment. And so I, I think we're proudly old fashioned in that way, in a good way, right? That we are trying to look at the whole person over time, identify the things that really matter to us as, a, as an institution that are reflected in individual behaviors. And by the way, you know, we're, get, we're seeing more and more people get hired for one job who then find a job elsewhere, right? So their ability to sort of fit cross-culturally contributes to a longer career, right? To, to, and, and their ability, like for example, in best practices, we have a couple of folks who've come from the operational side, you know, dealing with the ISACs, and now that they're bringing like tremendous insight to people, you know, the people who live and breathe in the, you know, 24 seven craziness of current operations contribute a lot to best practices because they're aware of how things are really failing in real life. And so there's, that's a great opportunity. But again, this idea of sort of codifying uh, the individual behaviors that contribute to the corporate culture uh, allows us then to think of this in, in the long term, right? How do we, how do we get, uh, acquire the right talent? How do we help them uh, have careers? How do we prepare them for jobs that aren't the job we hire them for, but are still essential to the future of the company? So I think that's a, that's a great example, Sean, of how we think about that. So, so uh, as you said, a lot of the conversation today sort of wraps all these um, different skills up. And, uh, and, and by the way, these are a complement to the technology skills, right? We're still looking for people that, that Absolutely. can deal with these uh, difficult technical issues and uh, continue to learn as, as all this changes. So, so I think it's a really exciting time for us. I think there's some uh, uh, lessons here. It is th this idea of these, uh, what we've called soft skills is a topic that comes up a lot, especially when I talk to school groups, you know, you see a lot of folks who are trying to find their way in, the, in cybersecurity, right? Maybe they're changing careers and to help them understand they're bringing some things, right? They're not starting at zero. They're bringing professional skills and, and learn the ability to learn and teamwork. And these other things are other skills that they can bring to the job. So I think that's a, you know, a, a big part of the, what we want to help people understand. Uh, and, and we need lots more people coming into this business with more diverse backgrounds, you know, rather than fewer. In fact, I, my, I know, you know, my son works for us and his background's in economics. And he once asked me, hey, hey Pops, uh, am I too late getting into this cyber business? And I said, no, my son, uh, it's pretty clear my generation is not going to solve a single foundational 
problem in computer security before <laughs> I leave. So I'm leaving you plenty of good work to do in the future. But I need you to get on it so that my retirement check shows up very regularly. So, exactly. so please go solve some of these problems. We clearly need some new voices, some new ideas and new thinking in this business. So so as always, Sean, it's, it's a great pleasure to, to share ideas with you and uh, yes. talk about some things from the, from the technical to the non-technical to the uh, institutional. It's always great to to compare notes and hear some of your experience and share some of mine. So thank you very much. No, thank you, Tony. I really appreciate it. And well, that's that's our show for today. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the discussion. Remember to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. You can also follow us on social media uh, for the latest cybersecurity news and updates. Until next time, I'm Sean Atkinson. And I'm Tony Sager. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.